Ann Curzan is a college professor, and she teaches a course on the history of the English language. I recently watched a TED Talk of hers online, and in this TED Talk, uh, she says at the beginning of every semester, she asks her students to teach her some new words. Okay, what, what's the newest slang out there? What are some, she loves new words. Teach me some words I don't know. So recently they taught her hangry. Ever use that word, hangry? It's when you're kind of irritable because you haven't eaten in a while. Or how about this one, adorkable? Okay, you're cute, but you're, you know, you're dorky. Uh, or YOLO, which is an acronym, which means you only live once. New words. But she says she also likes old words whose meanings change over time. And it's interesting to trace the uh, evolution of the meanings of these words. Uh, for example, the word awful. We know that the, the word awful today, it means terrible. But it used to mean inspiring awe, inspiring wonder, full of awe. Okay, or how about the word nice? Today it means pleasant or agreeable, but it used to mean foolish. So you could use that this week. You could say, oh, you're so nice. <laughs> the, the word flirt, today it means to show an interest in. It used to mean to flick something away. Uh, the word fizzle, today it means to end feebly. It used to mean to pass gas. Okay, who fizzled? All right. The word hussy, today it means disreputable woman. Used to mean a housewife. Some of you guys are married to a hussy. All right. The meaning of a word occasionally changes over time. Now, the reason I tell you that is because the same thing is true of some Bible words, some Bible concepts. One of the most important Bible concepts out there is sacrifice. Now, in Old Testament times, animal sacrifices were offered to God as a part of regular worship. Uh, what did those sacrifices mean? Uh, some of you already know this, but they were a payment for people's sins. So here, here's how it all began. Uh, people, humanity, are notorious uh, rule breakers. We're disobedient by nature. God says do this and we want to do that. Uh, God says don't do that and that's, you know, that's exactly what we want to do. So we're, we're disobedient. We, we go our way instead of God's way. And this drives a wedge in our relationship with a holy God. It disconnects us from God. And because God is the source of life, when you disconnect from the source of life, you die. That's the consequence. This is what the Bible teaches. Romans 6, verse 23 says, the wages of sin is death. So because of our sin, we die spiritually. You know, our, our relationship with God is broken. We eventually die physically. And then if this problem isn't figured out in this life, we'll die eternally, separated from God. So in Old Testament times, God said to his people, here's what I'm going to graciously do to you. I'm going to allow you to substitute an animal's death for the death you deserve to die because of your sins. Okay, you've dis disconnected from me. The penalty is death, but I'll accept an animal's death in your place. And so this is how animal sacrifices began. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this, but at Christ Community Church, we never include animal sacrifices in our services. Now, truth is, some of you never make it here on time, and so we could be offering them before you get here. You just... <laughs> I had to get that in. But, you know, why don't we offer animal sacrifices? It's in the Bible. 
Well, well, because the Bible's storyline progresses. It moves from Old Testament to New Testament, and those animal sacrifices in the Old Testament point to an ultimate sacrifice coming down the road, the arrival of Jesus Christ, God's Son on planet Earth, and he lays down his life on the cross to pay the penalty for sins. And because his life as the eternal Son of God is of infinite worth, Jesus' sacrifice covers everybody who surrenders their life to him. If you've done that, your sins have been atoned for, they've been paid for by Jesus. So when, when we go from Old Testament to New Testament, we see some development in this concept of sacrifice. Theologians have an, an expression to describe this. They call it progressive revelation. Progressive revelation. God reveals his truth in his word progressively. Okay, so if you ask an Old Testament believer, what comes to your mind when I say sacrifice? They're thinking a little woolly lamb that's going to be offered on the altar this week. Okay, when, when you say what comes to your mind when I say sacrifice to a Christ follower living in 2017, we think of Jesus dying on the cross in our place. Progressive revelation. Now, what does this have to do with the series that we're currently uh, doing here on weekends in the Old Testament book of Joshua? Okay, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about progressive revelation today, all right? If you've got a Bible, I want you to turn with me to Joshua chapter 14, so the sixth book into your Bible. Uh, this is a Bible-savvy series. Uh, we do these several times a year because we encourage you to be Bible readers on a daily basis. And so we put together a Bible-savvy reading schedule and a journal where you can record your insights and applications, and you could get it uh, a hard copy, or you could go online and download our Christ Community app and have it electronically every day right there for you. We estimate you know, over 2,000 people are currently using this daily reading the Bible, and so several times a year, we just drop into whatever passages we're reading at the time to encourage you to keep doing this, keep reading on a regular basis. And right now, the reading schedule is in Joshua. And this past week, you read Joshua chapters 14 through 19. So what did you read? What did you read? Well, it's a, a lot of explanation of divvying up the promised land among the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, God's people had spent 400 years as slaves in Egypt, and they were now beginning to possess the promised land just west of the Jordan River. And Joshua, their fearless leader, was, ass was assigning a specific territory in the promised land to each of the 12 tribes. So if your Bible is open to Joshua 14, I want you to look at the heading over that chapter. So this is one of the Bible study tips I've given you. Every time you read a passage of Scripture, look at the heading, because the heading will tell you the theme of that passage, and the better you understand the theme of a text you're about to read, the more likely you'll be able to understand what God is saying to the original audience and how it applies to you. So, so we look at, at Joshua chapter 14, the heading in my Bible that tells me the theme. It says, Division of the Land West of the Jordan. Not too scintillating. Okay, let's, let's go down to the next heading. Maybe that's more helpful. Drop down to verse 6. There's another heading. It says, allotment for Caleb. Okay, this is going to be a passage that describes Caleb, one of the Israelites, the uh, bit of territory that he's given in the promised land. Let's drop down to another heading. Over chapter 15 is the next one. It says, allotment for Judah. Uh, Judah isn't an individual, it's, a, it's an entire tribe. This is the, the parcel of property in the promised land they're going to get. 
Keep going. The next heading is over chapter 16, allotment for Ephraim and Manasseh, two more tribes. Chapter 17 has no headings. Chapter 18 has two headings, division of the rest of the land, and a little further on, allotment for Benjamin. You still with me? Chapter 19 has seven headings, and they all begin with the words allotment for, allotment for, allotment for, followed by the name of a tribe. Now, if you read these chapters this last week, somewhere in the middle of it, you thought to yourself, this is why people who start reading the Bible eventually stop. Okay? It's this kind of stuff that is tedious and boring, and what is it? What could it possibly say to my life? It's a great question. I want to begin by uh, begin to answer that question by noting that Bible scholars tell us that Joshua chapters 14 to 19 are the most important chapters in the entire book. You say, you got to be kidding me. Really? I can understand maybe how these chapters were pertinent to the people who eventually got this information. I mean, if I were a believer living in 1400 BC and I was getting a parcel of the promised land, I could see how this would make sense. But I'm a Christ follower living in 2017. What what am I supposed to do with this? Progressive revelation. See, when you said land to a person in the promised land, 1400 BC, they immediately thought in terms of actual land, piece of property that had boundaries. There were cities, there were towns on this piece of land. There were topographical features like mountains and rivers and so on. But when you say land to a Christ follower today who's reading the book of Joshua, what does it mean? What, what has the word come to mean? This is what we're going to take a look at today. Now, if you haven't taken the outline from your program, I encourage you to do that. I'm going to give you four truths about God that land speaks to us today. Now, this is another thing I tell you to look for whenever you're reading a passage of the Bible. If you're wondering, what am I supposed to get out of this? Ask the question, what did I just learn about God? Go back over the verses you read. What are the truths about God in this passage? So I'm going to give you four truths about God to take away. Here's truth number one. What does land say to us today? Land says God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. Now let me give you a little backstory here. 600 years before Israel entered the promised land, God made a promise, which is why it's called the promised land, to their ancestor Abraham. God had just moved Abraham to this very spot on the map. He was a nomad at the time. He was traveling through. And one starry night, you could read about this in Genesis 12, one starry night, God takes Abraham out and says, Abraham, look at the sky. You see all those stars? Count them, Abraham. Abraham says, God, I can't count all the stars. God says, exactly. That's how many descendants I'm going to give you. And I'm going to make of your descendants a great nation. In fact, Abraham, I'm going to call them my people, and the reason they're going to be my people is that through them I plan to bless the world. Now, friends, this was a a veiled reference to Jesus Christ, an eventual descendant of Abraham who would come to the world as Savior, a blessing to all who surrender their lives to him. But, But there was more to the promise. Besides everything I've just said, God, God said there's, there's also a land dimension to this blessing, Abraham. The land that you're currently traversing as a nomad, I'm going to give it to your descendants as permanent property. It's going to be their homeland forever and ever. Now, for 600 years, Abraham's descendants have been wondering, when does this promise get fulfilled? 
Is God going to deliver the goods? Does God keep his word? So here we are in the book of Joshua, and you know what we're learning in chapters 14 through 19? We're learning that God is a God who keeps his promises. God delivers the goods. And the land is being parceled up in fulfillment to a promise that God made to Abraham 600 years later. And yes, it's a bit boring. And it reads a little, chapters 14 through 19 read a little like a surveyor's report, right? But, but that's to underscore the fact that this is actually coming to pass. This is a reality. This is a truth. This isn't just a pie in the sky, what we hope will happen. It's actually happening. So let me, let me give you an analogy here. How many of you own your own house? Okay, suppose you decide to build a fence on your property, on the border of your, your property. How many of you know that you just can't go out into your backyard and say, well, I think I'll put it there. Okay, like, I, you know, my property line, I imagine it's somewhere around that bush and that you know, tree over. You can't do that. What do you got to do? You got to go to the town hall, right? You got to get a copy of your plat of property that shows you own what you think you own and exactly where the boundaries are. And this legal document says the land is really yours. See, this is what we have in Joshua 14 to 19, this surveyor's report saying this property is really given by God to his people. God keeps his word. God fulfills his promises. Now, friends, isn't it good to know? Isn't it good to know in a world of broken promises that God keeps his? <laughs> you know, what, what promises have been made to you, maybe recently, that haven't been kept? You know, when we stop to think about it, there are probably dozens of promises made to us every day that, uh, that are never kept. You know, the repairman said he'd be there by a certain time. You know, the friend promised he'd give you tickets to the Cubs game. The, the teenage son promised that he'd have the car home by midnight. The diet plan promised you'd lose 10 pounds in 10 days. And you know, what happened? And, and those are small promises. What about the big ones? What about the, the boss who promised you the raise you really need? Or the spouse who promised you some years ago to be faithful till death do us part? What about the home seller who, who promised you that the house is in mint condition, never a drop of water in the basement? What about the dad who promised you as a child a fishing trip or the bonding experience that never happened? In a world of promise breakers, God is the promise keeper. He's the promise keeper. Now, unfortunately, that won't do you any good if you don't know what his promises are. I mean, imagine if I come up to you after the service today and I say, hey, by the way, this week I'm going to fulfill that promise I made to you. And you say, great. And as you're walking away, your friend turns to you and says, well, what did Jim promise you? And you say, I have the foggiest notion. I don't know. See, God's, God's promises are no good to you if you don't know what they are. And this is why I'm going to commend, again, the daily reading of the Bible, this Bible-savvy schedule we keep beating the drum for. And as you read God's Word, look for the promises. Look for the promises. So if you're going through a tough time and you're wondering, is God there? Then you cling to Isaiah 43, verse 2. You know what it says? God promises when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. Are you facing a difficult decision these days? And well, You could use a little direction, a little wisdom. Do you know the promise of James 1, verse 5? 
James 1 verse 5 promises, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously and without finding fault, and it will be given to you. So you got promise after promise after promise after promise in the Bible, and the detailed description of God giving Israel the land in Joshua 14 to 19 drives home the point that God keeps his promises. You get it? Good. What does the land say to us today? What does land come to mean? Number two, it means God gives us victories, but he expects us to fight for them. God gives us victories, but he expects us to fight for them. Remember Caleb? Forty years earlier, before Israel enters the promised land, They had come to the very edge, the very verge of the promised land, and Moses, who was the leader at the time, he sends 12 spies in to check things out. Now, two of the spies bring back a positive report, Joshua and his good buddy Caleb. They say, we can do it. You know, this is is some amazing real estate, and God will give us the victory. The other 10 spies brought back a distressing, a negative report. And they say, you know, we can't do this. We're going to get our butts kicked. Let's get out of here. Some even said, let's go back to Egypt where things were so good, right? Yeah. And so all of the people were discouraged, and they said, we don't want the promised land. And God said, okay, you don't want the promised land? You don't want to trust me to give you victory? Here's what's going to happen. You're going to wander in the desert for 40 years until all the naysayers, all the Debbie Downers, apology to Debbies here today, all the negative people until they all die off. And that's what happened. And the only two older people, the older generation left 40 years later are Joshua and Caleb. Now, I want to read to you as Joshua's parceling out the promised land from chapter 14, I want to read to you Caleb's response. And let me remind you that Caleb's 85 years old when he says this. Okay, just to put it in perspective, verse 11. Caleb says, I am still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard that the Anakites, they were big bad dudes, the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified, but the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. Okay, this is the word of the Lord. And thank you God for giving us role models like Caleb, (laughs) this senior citizen. What's he doing with his retirement? He's not playing golf and waiting for the next uh, social security check. He's saying, give me my piece of property and I'll take it. In fact, give me the hill country because that's the roughest terrain and I want to go where the baddest bad guys are and with God's help, we're going to do this. God gives victory. I'm going to fight for it. Now, now friends, this this is a two-sided coin, a two-sided truth that's repeated over and over and over again in the book of Joshua. God gives us victories, but he expects us to fight for them. Now, the victories that we're talking about today are not the taking of the promised land. Okay, mo- most of our victories today have to do with taking ground, making progress in the Christian life. So some Christ followers tend to emphasize in this regard the first half of the equation. God gives us victories but they never fight for those victories. You know, they think that surrendering their lives to Christ means that God has put them on some sort of cosmic cruise control. So they, you know, they don't need to do a thing. God does it all. Their mantra is let go and let God. 
Now, at the other end of the spectrum, there are Christ followers who tend to emphasize, we're going to have to fight. We're going to have to fight for these victories. And so instead of depending on God for their progress, they're depending on their own determination. They're depending on their to-do lists and their personal disciplines and the latest Christian self-help book and accountability partners and so on. They're depending on themselves. Both of these extremes are wrong. We need a balance between God gives us victories and we got to fight for them. Now, I want to give you a couple of examples of what I'm talking about here. I'm going to give you a positive example of something to fight for with God's help. And I want to give you a negative example of something to fight against with God's help. This is the taking of the land for us today, all right? So when it comes to something positive to fight for, I'm going to take a Christian virtue. Many I could have selected, but I'm going to choose generosity, okay? Because this is so big in the Bible. It's a character quality God wants us to have. Jesus said it, it's more blessed to give than to receive. I wonder how many of us really believe that. <laughs> the Apostle Paul said God loves a cheerful giver. So the Bible's really big on this character quality of generosity. This is land God wants us to take. How do we take it? Some say, well, God gives victories, and so they're totally dependent upon God for this, and they never become generous givers. Why? Because they're waiting for God to do something that God has said you've got to fight for. What are they waiting for God? Well, they're waiting for God to give them the irresistible urge to give. Okay, see, if God gives me the urge, then I'll put something in the offering bag, or I'll take a bag of groceries down to a neighbor who just lost a job, or I'll write out a big check to, for hurricane relief. But I, I haven't felt that irresistible urge yet. See, God hasn't given me the urge. And not only that, he hasn't given me the money. So I just got a normal job. If, if I made a lot more money, if I got a raise at work, or if I won the lottery, or if God gave me a rich uncle who passes away, then I'd be really generous. You're, you're never going to take the land in this regard unless you fight for it. So what does fighting look like with respect to generosity? It may start with going to FPU. You sign up for Financial Peace University so you can learn how to get your financial house in order, how you could trim back on your spending habits, how you could get out of debt, enabling you to be a generous person. Fighting may involve driving a stake into the ground, doing it today, say, saying with my very next paycheck, I've been putting this off way too long. I've been waiting for God to give me the irresistible urge. I'm going to do it, and I'm going to write 10% off the top of that paycheck, the biblical tithe. I'm going to give it back to the Lord for his work. Fighting for what God, the land God wants you to take. You with me? Okay, that's an example of something positive to fight for. Let me give you an example of something negative to fight against. Let's choose lust, okay? Now, we, we live in a sex-crazed culture, and so fighting for sexual purity is a difficult thing, especially in your mind. Now, I don't know what the fight entails for a, a woman, but speaking for guys, I could tell you it's a battle because everywhere you turn in our culture today, oh my goodness, on every single electronic device I own, porn is one click away. Okay, I go to work out at the health club, and there are all sorts of beautiful bodies in revealing outfits. I, I go to a movie, I watch a TV program, the storyline's got something to do with hooking up. Everywhere I turn, 
So how can you win the battle for spiritual purity? Now, I'll tell you, some of my brothers in Christ, they say, well, God gives the victory. And then when they fall on their face, they blame God. See, he was supposed to do something here. I, I prayed and asked him to take away the urge to go to porn sites, and I, I'm still visiting those websites. God, why don't you answer my prayer? And God's saying, why aren't you fighting for it? How do you fight for it? I read a book about this uh, this past summer. One of my best reads of the summer, a book called Sexual Sanity for Men. Our counseling pastor, Stephen Ganchel, flipped it to me. He said, I think you'll, you'll find this helpful and you might want to recommend it to other guys. I'll tell you, it's good for me. Yeah, one of the chapters in the book is called, Are You Ready to Fight? Are you, guys, are you ready to fight? What does fighting involve when it comes to sexual purity in your mind? Okay, maybe it involves a, an accountability partner to whom you're absolutely honest and open. I bought a copy of this book for my accountability partner. We're starting to go through it together now. You know, somebody you tell the deepest, darkest struggles you have in this regard to, you're totally open with them. Maybe fighting involves picking up a copy of this book yourself, and if you're in a men's group, suggesting that your guys do it for six, eight weeks. You know, curriculum, use it as a curriculum. Maybe it means putting a filter on every electronic device you have. I, I got one on my phone, on my TV, on my computer, and my wife's got the code. I don't. Okay, maybe it involves Karenite. You heard a video testimonial about Karenite. We've been running Karenite at our St. Charles campus for years. It's going now at Streamwood Bartlett. You guys got a Karenite? Blackberry Creek, you just started a Karenite a week or two ago. And Karenite covers all sorts of things people struggle with. So if you're going through grief or you've gone through a divorce or you're struggling with an addiction or, you know, and, and one of the groups that we offer at the St. Charles campus is for guys who want to live pure lives and are willing to fight for it, to fight lust. See, so what, what do we learn about the taking of land in the book of Joshua? We learn that God gives victories but he expects us to fight for them. Okay, let's go for another truth. Truth number three, what does land mean? It means God provides ultimate rest from our enemies. God provides ultimate rest for, for, from our enemies. When Israel was done taking the, the land, the promised land that God had given them, they began to enjoy a period of rest. And rest is one of the key concepts in the book of Joshua. So if you're open to Joshua, flip back to chapter 1. So all, all the way back in the opening chapter, Joshua is speaking to his army before they go into the promised land. And he says in verse 13, the Lord your God will give you rest by giving you this land. So you got rest and land. And go over to Joshua chapter 11. After a number of victorious battles, verse 23 reads, I'll read just bits and pieces of this this verse. So Joshua took the entire land and gave it as an inheritance to Israel, and then the land had rest from war. So again, you got this combo of land and rest. Okay, go to one of the last chapters, Joshua chapter 22, drop down to verse 43, 43 and 44 read, so the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their ancestors, and they took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side. You get the idea. There are many more references to this combination of land and rest in the book of Joshua. So what do we take from this for our lives today? 
You say, hey, a moment ago you were talking about how we got to fight for progress in our Christian life. That doesn't sound like rest to me. Where does the rest part come in? Well, there are two senses in which Christ followers experience rest from our enemies. First, uh, even though we're currently engaged in a nonstop battle with sin, the Bible teaches that Christ has already won that battle on our behalf. That Christ won the battle for us. For those of us who've surrendered our lives to Jesus, every one of our moral failures, past, present, future, was nailed to Christ's cross. He bore our guilt. He paid our penalty. And so, yes, I, you know, I will continue in an ongoing way. I will continue to battle lust and materialism and dishonesty and self-centeredness and, and you name it. And I will frequently fall on my face in these battles. But I rest, listen, I rest in the fact that Jesus has conquered those things on my behalf. He's won a victory for me. And that's why Jesus could extend this invitation to a crowd as recorded in Matthew eleven twenty-eight, one of my favorite scriptures. Jesus says, come to me, you who are tired and burdened, and I will give you what? Rest. Oh, friends, what an invitation. Some of you today, you're just so sick of the, can I say, you're so sick of the crap in your life. And Jesus says, come to me. I'll give you rest. It's going to be an ongoing battle, but I've won the battle. You can engage in the battle knowing the victory's already been won. I've won it. You're forgiven. You know, that song that we sang today wrecks me every time we sing, Oh, come to the altar. Are you hurting and broken within, overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? Jesus is calling. Leave your regrets and mistakes. Come today. There's no reason to wait. Jesus is calling. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. That's rest, friends. You know, the New Testament writer of Hebrews reflects back on Joshua, who lived centuries earlier, and he said, you know, Joshua gave God's people rest in the promised land, but it was a short-lived rest. The writer of Hebrews says, if you want ultimate rest, if you want rest that lasts, go to Jesus. If you want rest for your soul and you've never come to Jesus, surrender to Jesus today. By the way, we're going to be talking about this rest in a new series. Our next series is on invitations Jesus extends to people. So we're going to talk about this three, four weeks from now. now. Now, the taking of the promised land in Joshua also points to a second kind of ultimate rest from our enemies. It is the rest that Christ promises his followers at the end of time. See, Jesus will return, Scripture teaches, and he will set up an eternal kingdom. There will be a spectacular new heaven and new earth, and it will become the permanent residence of everyone who surrendered to King Jesus in this life. So rest, ultimate rest in a new heaven and new earth. Now, just a side note here. Okay, there... There are some Bible scholars who look at all the promises that God makes to ancient Israel for a homeland. God says, I'm going to give you a land of your own. It's going to be your land forever and ever and ever. 
And, and they conclude from these prophecies and other prophecies that uh, come near the end of time, we're going to see a, a, revive, a spiritual revival among Jewish people. Many are going to come to acknowledge Jesus as their Messiah. And in doing so, like the rest of us, they're going to receive forgiveness and new life. And these Jewish believers are going to get a little sliver of land as a permanent homeland called Israel, the nation of Israel. And this group of scholars, they, they look at recent, relatively recent events, like in 1948, Israel, for the first time in hundreds of years, becomes a nation state once again, and we're all wondering with bated breath, is it right around the corner, maybe when Jesus returns, and just before he comes back, Jewish people flock to him as their Messiah, and so he comes and he sets up an eternal kingdom, and they get their sliver of property in the Middle East called Israel. Now, there's another group of scholars, and I tend to agree more with the second group that say, well, wait, wait a second here. You know, I get the part from Bible prophecy. It seems to indicate that near the end of time, there will be spiritual revival, and many Jewish people are going to come to acknowledge Jesus as Messiah. However, why give them just a little sliver of property called Israel in the Middle East? See, there's been a progressive revelation going on here. What does land mean now? To believers, it means a new heaven and a new earth. Why should I settle for a little slice of land called, called Israel when I get the whole enchilada? You with me? I don't know about you, I want the whole thing. I want the whole thing. The scripture that describes what this new heaven and new earth are going to be like, read it sometime, the closing two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22. It's going to be a place of rest in the ultimate sense. It's going to be rest from sin. It's going to be rest from sickness and disease. It's going to be rest from death, thank God. It's going to be rest from injustice. It's going to be rest from drought and from natural disasters. It's going to be rest from unmet needs. It's going to be rest from crying and tears and sadness. This is what Jesus has in store for all who surrender to him, ultimate rest from our enemies. My, my, my son Andrew told me a week or two ago, he said he and his wife are now re-watching all nine episodes of the TV blockbuster 24. And uh, so if you've never seen it, you know, the beginning of every season, uh, America is faced with a terrorist crisis. But uh, thankfully, we have Jack Bauer, super agent, on our side. And so every episode, there are 24 episodes in a year, and every episode represents one hour in a day of his life, 24 in all, when he saves the country. But I could remember watching the series when it first came out, and Andrew was, it was just a high school student, and we sat on the edge of the sofa watching this, you know, with our, with our palms all sweaty, wondering, is Jack going to pull it off? Are we going to be here tomorrow? Yeah, but you come to the end of the season... And you could finally rest until the beginning of the next season. And there's another terrorist threat. And oh, here we go again. I'm going to tell you, we're going to get a piece of property one day, a new heaven and a new earth that's spectacular beyond imagination. And the one who keeps Homeland Security is not Jack Bauer. It's Jesus Christ, the King. Wow. Wow. So that's what land means to a believer today. One, one final one, fourth. What does land become? Well, it means that God deserves our gratitude. 
God deserves our gratitude. This is the fourth truth about God. Over 50 times, listen, over 50 times in the book of Joshua, the promised land is spoken of as something God gives his people. God gives it. God gives it. God gives it. It's a gift. It's a gift. It's a gift. According, uh, along these same lines in the book of Joshua chapters 14 through 19 that we read this last week, there's a word that repeats numerous times. If you were looking for repeating words or ideas like I've coached you to do, you might have circled this in your Bible. It's the word inheritance. This land was an inheritance. An inheritance is not something you earn. It's given to you. Just another way of saying it's a gift. It's a gift. The land is a gift. It's a gift. It's... So friends, when you get a super gift from somebody, when you get a gift that's undeserved, that's in, incredible, what do you do? Call it out. What do you do? You say, thanks. In fact, anything less than gratitude expressed would be an insult, would it not? So what do you do when God says, if I got something in store for you, everything we've been talking about today, all that the land means to us today, the rich way in which God's blessed our lives, are you going to say thank you? How do we say thank you? Three quick ways. Uh, number one, we say it with our words. We determine, even starting this week, I'm going to be much more thankful. I'm going to say things out loud. Thank you, God, for this. Thank you, God, for that. Or my wife's expression, she, she's constantly saying, who gets all this? You know, thank you, God, for everything you've given me. Become verbally a more thankful person. And then determine once a week. You're not going to let anything get in the way of you being in a mass of people who are lifting your praise and your worship and your thanksgiving to God Almighty because he deserves it. He deserves it. Second way you say it is through your serving. There is no such thing as a spectator Christ follower, okay? So if you've been spectating around Christ Community Church, it's time to roll up your sleeves and say thank you to God by the way you serve him. And a third way you say thank you is through gifts. Okay, you, you, you bring God gifts. Now, let, let me tell you something Moses said to the people of God just before they entered the promised land. Moses is about to pass away. And he says, word of warning, word of warning. Somewhere down the road, when you get into the promised land, you're going to get comfortable. You're going to be prosperous. You're, you're going to put your arms across your chest and say, didn't we do a good job? Look at all we, look at the life we made for ourselves. Moses said, don't you ever let that happen. Don't you ever forget that it's all come to you from God's hand. How do you remember? Moses said, here's how you remember. With every harvest, every crop. Remember, this is an agrarian culture, so this is their job. With every prophet, you bring the first fruits of your labor and you give it as a, a gift to the Lord. You, know, you, you bring the top off your salary, you give it to the Lord as a way of saying it's all come from your hands. Every best lamb, every best goat in your flock, in your herd, you don't give God the lame ones, the ones that are going to die anyway. You give them the best on a regular basis. You say, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Now we're about to collect our gifts and offerings as we draw our service to a close. Will our gifts today, will your gift say thank you? Will, will your gift be a reflection of the richness with which God has blessed your life? God deserves our gratitude. Now let me just close in prayer and then we'll, we'll collect our gifts as we're singing a concluding song and then our campus pastors will come out and conclude the service. Let's pray together. 
God, thank you for what we learned about the land today and how it applies to our lives. Thank you for the reminder that the land means God keeps his promises. God, make us voracious readers of your word so that we're, we're unearthing the promises for our lives and we're living according to them, thanking you for the things you've promised to do for us. We've learned today that the, the land, the giving of the land means you give us victories, but you expect us to fight for them. So I pray for my friends today who are listening that we would determine we're going to fight, we're going to take new ground. And positively, we're going to go after those virtues you want to develop in our lives. Negatively, we're going to resist those sins and vices that bring us down. This land reminds us that you provide ultimate rest from our enemies. Jesus, you have given us rest from the biggest enemy of all, sin and death. And so even as we fight our battles, we know who wins in the end. You do. And you've promised us a new heaven and a new earth and ultimate rest that is, is just blows our minds when we read about it in Scripture. And so we want to say thank you to you today. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Hear our words. See our service. Receive our gifts. We say thank you. Amen.